This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Well, last month, we had a national election, but only in Virginia. By that, I mean that Virginia held state elections for governor, House delegates, and so on, but the races were heavily centered around national matters. Terry McAuliffe framed his gubernatorial campaign as running against Donald Trump as much as Glenn Youngkin. Feelings about President Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan trickled down. And of course, there was all the ginned-up fear around critical race theory. It was mentioned more than 2,000 times on Fox News this summer after being pushed hard by national right-wing propaganda organizations. When I started this podcast, I was struck by how many people closely follow national politics but know very, very little about how our own state government works or the power of state government to impact people's lives. David Toscano has written a book about exactly this, and he should know. He's the former Democratic leader in Virginia's House of Delegates, representing the 57th District from Charlottesville. And now he's also the author of Fighting Political Gridlock, How States Shape Our Nation and Our Lives. I sat down with David Toscano for this whole episode of Bold Dominion. Later in the episode, we'll explore the power of state legislatures and how citizens can interact with them to make a difference. But here in the first half, we dive into the powers of state governments and how states can shape national priorities. Well, David, the title of your book is Fighting Political Gridlock. And while I was reading through it, I was actually struck by it, how it kind of feels like a love letter to state government in some ways, like the, the kinds of political impact that we can have at the state level. How can states have an impact even when Washington is gridlocked? Yeah, first, everybody seems to be so consumed with what's going on at the federal level that they lose track of what the very big decisions are being resolved at the state level. And they're being resolved every day that a, a legislature is in session. So that even while Virginia is not in session right now, I think there's some 30 legislatures around the country that are presently passing bills on everything from criminal justice to education uh, to their state budgets. These are things that affect people's lives much more than they they realize. It almost sounds like fighting political gridlock is turn your attention to the states. Yeah, I mean... A perfect example is the the recent discussion about the voting rights bill in the Congress. Most people who have watched the federal dynamic for a long time would understand that the chances of passing a federal voting rights act in this climate are pretty minimal. So what you've got to do is fight the battle at the, in the state level, at the state level, because most of the rules about voting are determined in the states. And in Virginia, for example, just in the last session, the legislature under Democratic control passed a pretty expansive Voting Rights Act for Virginia. And there are a number of other states that are trying to enact better voting rights measures. Not all the states have been doing it, though. And in the red states, there's been a desire to restrict voting rights. So it's not, uh, you know, it's a mixed bag. I mean, that is one of the things that I think is, is challenging about looking at the state, state level politics is, yeah, we can do better in our state. Does that leave people behind? Well, that, that's the risk. And I mean, you really have to have a sort of umbrella set of rules, an umbrella set of norms and values in the country as a whole in order to keep it together. And part of the great 
thing about the U.S. Constitution is it just gives us a framework where we can resolve some of these issues. Let's take Mississippi, Texas, Alabama. All of these states in recent years have passed laws that are designed to try to attack Roe versus Wade and overturn reproductive rights that are granted under that decision uh, and return all abortion issues to the states. But part of the reason we have a U.S. Constitution is so that if there is a dispute, people can litigate it and take it through the federal process to the uh, uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. But you can't have all having all the states having all these different rules and there's no umbrella uh, operation of uh, sort of the political guardrails because then you could split the, the country in two and that would not be a very good thing. You know, if we can come back to this voting rights issue, because mm-hmm. this is really a key issue. A lot of people don't realize that all of the rules about voting are not made by the federal government. They're made by the states. Uh, all the rules about redistricting are not made at the federal government level. They're made in the states by state legislatures. And the subtitle of my book is How States Control the Country. Mm-hmm. That's a classic case. If you are drawing lines as a state legislator, if you have uh, voting provisions that are uh, that tend to suppress the vote, you are making determinations about who has the best chance to get to Congress and therefore making decisions that affect policy at the federal level. We've got no national system of, of who's qualified to vote. We've got no national system of, of how we draw our lines. Uh, I mean, how how do we have such a system where, where we actually have um, different rules by state for some of these things? That's the way the founders wanted it. They, they gave a lot of uh, uh, power to the states, and they supposedly had an umbrella federal system that was going to help keep it all together, but it doesn't, doesn't always work that way. You know... It is interesting. The United States Constitution doesn't explicitly guarantee people the right to vote, even though almost every single state constitution has language that says that all elections shall be free and no power shall interfere with the exercise of suffrage. That's a pretty powerful statement. And you only find it in state constitutions. You don't find it in the federal constitution. Talking about partisan redistricting. Uh, which is a very common thing around the country. Um, you know, you, you mentioned in the book, you talk at some length about the coordinated national strategy by the Republican Party to just gerrymander the hell out of out of state congressional districts. How is redistricting connected to this nationalization of state politics you write about? The Republicans, after Obama won in 2008, they had seen that election as potentially a watershed election. Number of national Republicans felt like they could never win a national election again because the demographics had just changed. And so they said to themselves, well, we can't win the presidency. The only way we can control the country is through the Congress. And the only way we can do that is through the state legislatures. And so they invested large amounts of money, national Republican dollars, into the process of getting control of state legislatures. And they were incredibly effective. The Democrats have sort of caught up. They had their own legislative redistricting commission. So, you know, the both parties are now playing that game. And if you look across the country, uh, you know, the the Republicans have been drawing maps now for a couple of months and they're drawing them away to protect their their interest. And 
people are saying that the redistricting itself is going to lead to the Republicans reasserting control of the Congress in the midterms. So that's how it plays out. And when the nationalization comes in, everybody is always thinking, what is this going to do to the national dynamic? They're not thinking about what it will do to the state. People vote for a candidate based on whether there's a D after their name or an R after their name. And they don't even necessarily know what the person stands for. And that's a nationalization point of view. There is so much money and so many forces on the national level who have who have an interest in nationalizing state politics. And there's actually one I wish I wish you'd actually written a little bit more about. You mentioned them is the uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, um, the, the huge, hugely moneyed uh, Koch Brothers funded organization that basically provides boilerplate bills to state state houses across the country and, and then lobbies for their passage. It's almost like a back doorway of getting new laws passed across the country. And that's consistent with some of the people's views about how you control things. They put out these bills that can be used in any legislature, and then they get all those, as many of those bills passed so that even though they couldn't change the federal laws, they can change everything at the state level. And the Koch brothers have been really good at doing that. There's a wonderful book called State Capture. Anybody who is interested in this issue of national money flowing into state legislative operations, pick up that book. There's two kind of parts of this I want to bring together here and juxtapose. You've got a line right in the first intro of your book, you know, where you say, at a time when Washington has proved unable to move decisively on many issues, state houses are beehives of activity and innovation, creating opportunities to move this nation in a positive direction. At the same time, I'm also hearing that really big money and, and outside groups is also a real factor and, and might even say problem. What's your take on all this? Well, big money is a big problem, and state governments do, yeah. especially Virginia, when there there are no uh, there are no limits on contributions that can come into the state. Virginia has some of the more lax uh, contribution laws uh, in the country, and our basic view has been: if you publish who gives the money, that's good enough. And as a result, we we're spending incredible amounts of money on state delegate races where a state delegate get, gets paid $17,600. But there are race after race after race where they're spending a million dollars to get that seat. It's having an impact because you're at least more more likely to pick up the phone if somebody calls you if they gave you $25,000. You have a chapter where you use the old uh, Louis Brandeis quote uh, that states are the laboratories of democracy. What does that mean to you? Well, it means that states have the ability to be flexible and think about creative, innovative approaches that the federal government would have a hard time doing because it just takes them so long to do anything. Here's an example. We have known for 50 years that our healthcare system is not, even though we deliver high quality care, it's a very expensive system. It's not run the way it should. And there are a lot of people who don't have access to the care. We've known that for a long time. People have tried to push for a federal solution. But then all of a sudden, a state comes along, Massachusetts, and they take an idea that says that everybody ought to be forced to have insurance and that anybody, everybody ought to be, be paying into the pot so that we can insure more people at lower cost. It was called the individual mandate. 
and they passed the first individual mandate state insurance program in the country, reduced the uninsured percentages dramatically. And this was became the model of the ACA, the Obamacare in DC four years later. So that's an example of a, of a state innovating an approach that the federal government could not do. And then that, that became the model for the federal system. So the feds can't do very much, but the states have been innovative. They've been that la- those laboratories of democracy that are trying to create solutions that where the feds haven't been able to do it. The, one of those areas where it's, it's been a big issue in the latest governor's race here in Virginia is education. How do you see this unfolding at the state level these days? Well, it's a function where the, the federal government has very little involvement and less than 10% of all money flowing for education at the K-12 level comes from the federal government. And every state, and this is, this is fascinating because every state has a different way of approaching how you fund education. That's one place where the state plays a role. The other place is it plays a role in policy. And this is where things are going to start getting hot in the next uh, couple of months because all of this stuff about books that are in schools and whether the degree to which parents ought to have a say in their kids' education, those decisions will be made at the legislative level or at the bureaucratic level in the state. And that's going to affect how, what your, how your child gets educated. And I think, you know, conservatives have known that for at least a century. I mean, you talk about the, the textbooks that were adopted in that lost cause narrative for history books. Uh, how kids grow up framing their understanding of the world is, a, is the long game. It's, it's a huge issue. And, you know, we and it, and it does raise the, sort of the issue about what's the proper role of the state versus the locality. And so then you get get into this issue, should there be, you know, some regular standards that cut across all jurisdictions. We've talked about kind of the, the relationship with state and national quite a bit, some of the nationalization of state politics, but really that, that relationship between the state and the local going down to the smaller scale. And so the Dillon rule, we've talked about that some here on the podcast, but, but take me through again, what does that mean? The Dillon rule, the essence of it is... <clears throat> is that the state is supreme, and unless the state allows a jurisdiction to do something, the jurisdiction can't do it. So when I was in the legislature, there would be things on affordable housing that I would want to have allow Charlottesville to do, but weren't permitted by state law. And I would go and ask for what's called enabling legislation to enable the locality to, to do that. And in the majority of the country, the Dillon rule predominates, but not every place in the country. There are some states that have what's called home rule to some extent, which means the localities can control most everything. But even there, the state still has the ultimate power, and it's called preemption, and the state can intervene to stop a locality if they don't like what that locality is doing. So it's not just Dillon rule states. It's every locality where a state can preempt that locality from doing what the state doesn't want it to do. Yeah. And then there is a, uh, um, I like how you put it, you know, in, in some ways, the Dillon rule versus home rule states, um, in practice, those aren't always all that different. 
uh, in how it kind of unfolds, but really what is different is how much a state acts to preempt local control. David Toscano is the former Democratic leader in Virginia's House of Delegates, and he's the author of Fighting Political Gridlock, How States Shape Our Nation and Our Lives. We're back with the second half of my interview with David in just a moment. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. You have a friend who's trying to get into state politics? Well, tell them about this show, and then subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. We like those. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. And hey, if you want to start a podcast yourself, we accept those too. Just check out the information over at virginiaaudio.org. Well, let's get back to my interview with David Toscano. He's got a new book called Fighting Political Gridlock that sees state governments as places that can shape policy at all levels and hopefully get us past the dysfunction in Washington. In the second half of today's show, David talks more about how regular people can take action to shape our civic lives. Let's talk about voters a little more and kind of how we get people more engaged with state politics in a constructive way. The fact is there's there's a real disconnect between citizens' perceptions of where important decisions happen versus where those decisions actually happen. Why is there that disconnect? We're not doing enough to educate people about its importance. The education runs the gamut. It's got to start when kids are young, uh, but but also... It has to do with things like you're doing and newspapers and media and the leaders try to reach out to their constituents and educate them what's going on. It's not just one single thing. It's a lot of things. You know, when I first got to Richmond, every day in the legislature, in the chamber, there would be five, six, seven uh, news reporters. By the time I left, you might see two in the room. Mm. And that that is having an impact on people understanding that their state government is doing this, that, or the other thing. People don't hear about it as much. Uh, and that's what we got to, I mean, good news around the country is you're seeing a lot more nonprofit news organizations popping up. So, so good things are happening, but more has to happen. Yeah. The, uh, the erosion of, of media of record does seem to have a real impact. I mean, media is, you know, almost entirely private in the United States, but it is a core part of of democracy functioning. And you, when you say of record, that's a really important distinction because we got a lot of media out there that's social media. You know, when we talk about media record, we're talking about people who are journalists who are trained to get several sources for a story, to check their sources, you had editors looking over their shoulder to to probe and make sure the story was right. Now anybody just says, I want to publish this, being hit the button and it's gone. And that that makes it very difficult for traditional journalists and very difficult for people to assess uh, the truth of what they are seeing out there. Um, I I want to move to the conclusion that you talk about here. You talk about um, civility. And not necessarily civility in the sense of just like being polite and always getting along, but civility as as sort of a way of engaging in civil life. What are the sort of principles of disagreeing better that you 
want to put out there? Well, I mean, one thing is humility, uh, understanding you don't have the answer for every darn thing. Secondly, is dynamism. And that is that you don't just accept what somebody tells you, even if they're yelling at you. I mean, you, you try to figure out exactly what they're saying and you, you push back. I mean, it's very hard for a leader to push back against a constituent that they think might be totally off the wall and to do it in a fashion that embraces that other person's humanity, even though you're telling them that they're essentially wrong. And I think that we've got to, we've got to recognize our, our, our own problems and our own, own deficiency, but we can't let, I guess, the basis of both parties get control by basically just shouting at us. And, and I think that that's part of some of the problem we're having here locally is that we're letting some people take control of a, of a process in a way that shuts down other people from embracing and engaging in the process. Because it's not just about the people who are totally aggrieved having their say, it's also engaging people who want to have a say, but want to feel, shall we say, safe in a place where they can say it. Um, so civility isn't just politeness. It's, 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 it's more than that. It's an, an engaged, engaging process where disagreement is recognized uh, and the humanity of the person who's making the comment is, is recognized as well. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciated the section two on, on sort of reinforcing political guardrails and a couple examples you gave. Um, and that's a good political guardrail that I feel like has been entirely broken since Donald Trump. Uh, well, I think so, too. I mean, you recall first the introduction of my book is called The Fight of Our Lives. And yeah. it, it details how political discourse during the Trump years really went down. I mean, it's been a problem. I mean, Trump didn't create it. It's been there for a while. But it is incumbent upon leaders in political life to basically stand up to that and, and say, no, we're not going to do this. Uh, all of this issue about election integrity uh, and the failure of Republicans to acknowledge that Joe Biden was fairly elected is having a tremendous impact on our perception of the legitimacy of our elections. You know, uh, to his credit, Youngkin said that Biden was elected and he's our president, but he still used the word election integrity in a lot of his stuff. Terry McAuliffe was re reinforcing the guardrails. I mean, he lost not by too many votes, but he he didn't he didn't say that the election was stolen from him. He, you know, he said the election was fair and square and I just lost. And, you know, that's the way this country works. And right now, there are a lot of people, especially in the Republican arena, who so bought into the big lie, they can't really acknowledge that our election process is pretty darn good. And what they're doing is potentially undermining people's perception that it's legitimate. And that's very dangerous because once that goes, you know, authoritarianism is right behind. It's coming to, to us. It's a, a chilling thought that you close with and, and really very much connected to my question here is that how do you how do you operate a liberal democracy where there is disagreement and the one who loses steps aside for a minute? How do you how do you do that when one side is acting in that kind of bad faith? Oh, boy, that's the question that's going to face us for the next decade. I mean, there are some people out there who say, look, 
the Democrats got to learn how to fight and because the Republicans are not fighting fair and that uh, we got to play on their battlefield. I, you know, I, I understand that point of view and I think you got to figure out a way to fight against things you disagree with. But as soon as we lose our, lose track of our norms, things like lying in public and misrepresenting facts and, we we set that we keep that dynamic going. The only way you break the cycle is to act differently. And maybe it's Pollyanna ish of me. I don't know. Or maybe it's, I'm just getting older. But I think it is the only way to break the cycle. And it's going to take leaders on both sides. It's going to take Democrats, for example, when they get control of the Virginia legislature again, not to overreach and. You know, do what you need to do to protect your constituents, but uh, proportional representation in, the, in in committees in the legislature. Okay, you don't have to have that rule. You it used to be that Democrats would have twenty Democrats on a committee and two Republicans, uh, and the Re- Republicans changed that rule in the two thousands. The Democrats could have changed the rule to not have proportional representation. They didn't do that. There was discussion about doing that, but they didn't do it. So that was a great thing that they just kept in place. The filibuster, however, is not going outside the guardrails. We should get rid of the way we do the filibuster nationally. And there's no historical precedent for us doing it the way we do it now. This is not in the Constitution. This notion that somehow it's sacrosanct is ridiculous. Um, uh, And actually, it's funny. Here's a place where you could look to the states because the states almost never have filibusters because they have rules that allow you to cut off debate at the appropriate time so you can keep moving through your docket and get stuff done. Look to the states. Yeah. It, it's it's tricky, David, and I'm kind of with you. There, there's this part of me that really wants for liberal democracy to work in the way that, that you know, Schoolhouse Rock version of it taught us. Um and then the other part of me that knows it really is about just power. Yeah, I know. And the t- power is so tempting. I mean, when you get in the majority, it is so tempting to do everything you wanted to do, even though you're not sure that the bill you wrote actually operates the way it's supposed to. And you've got a lot of that stuff that happens when uh, a group that has been in the wilderness for a long time takes over. There are a number of bills. I think my Democratic colleagues are saying, oh, my God, I don't really I don't I wish I'd looked at this a little more carefully. There's some things in here I don't think is, are so good, but they wanted to pass these things. And the, so they passed a lot of things and they and they passed a lot of really good things. So my compliments to them on that. I want to uh, get your advice for sort of regular folks, people who aren't lawmakers. Uh, maybe they follow national news. Maybe they've just started listening to this podcast. They're people who voted in the last election. Chances are they're voting against the other party, uh, that negative polarization that you talk about. How do you get from negative polarization to constructive engagement? For the average citizen, I think if they watch how the system operates, they'll realize there are there are things that are quaint about the state system that allows people to participate in a way that can actually have an impact. I've seen bills come before committees where an individual person just shows up while the bill is being heard. And when they ask for the public comments, which they do, they do that in state legislatures 
all, all over the country. It doesn't happen in Congress. Somebody will come into the dais and say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And they could they derail the bill. I've seen this happen several times. And it, and if it doesn't derail the bill, it allows the legislators to take a step back and say, wait a minute here. This doesn't do what we thought it was going to do. The other thing is there are a lot of bills that state legislators vote on. They don't really care what one way of it or the other on that bill. So if they get a letter or an email from a constituent or a phone message from a constituent saying vote no, and that's the only one they get, they might just vote no because they haven't really looked at it very carefully. And that no vote could lead somebody else to take a look at that bill, maybe even the governor's office and say, wait a minute here, there's a problem with this bill. And then they fix it. So the, these are opportunities that people have that they wouldn't think they'd have unless they're watching the system. And you can do it all online now because you can just watch these things online and then jump in. So, um, and you can't do that at the federal level. You can watch, but you can't say anything. And if you, uh, and if you ever had a uh, thought to yourself, like there ought to be a law, um, you can contact your local representative that, that's sitting in the state Senate or the uh, House of Delegates. And, and what's the best time of year, if somebody had an idea for a new bill, uh, what, contact their lawmaker in what, August, September? Oh, best times in the summer. Yeah, summer. Because people are not as busy, and if you get you get into the fall, things start to heat up. David Toscano is the author of Fighting Political Gridlock, How States Shape Our Nation and Our Lives. He's the former Democratic leader in Virginia's House of Delegates, representing the 57th District from Charlottesville. Thanks to him for joining us this week, as well as our producer, Catherine Hansen. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion, Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away. 